Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. So I want to continue our, um, our reflections about uh, creative mind and practice and expand them a little bit today. Uh, so in the beginning, um, we talked a little bit about taking this creative mind training towards our practice, um, which is a little bit different from using our practice to express ourselves creatively. Right? So it's the, this backward turn that Dogen talks about and shining our light within. Um, but first, I think, uh, today, we need to acknowledge the kind of grief and the struggle that we've been experiencing, right? And that both personally, the loss of Martha Ward, and also collectively as a society, um, the enormous losses of the pandemic and the loss of confidence and trust in the political process and a lot of other factors are contributing to making us quite distressed much of the time. Um, and so, there's a lot of ways that people try to deal with the awareness, the painful awareness of all of these um, distressing elements in our, uh, in our lives. So typically we have some kind of escape, usually with distractions or, um, or absorbing ourselves in some simple pleasures. At least I can have this cookie. <laughs> the climate is totally beyond repair, but I can have this cookie, <laughs> and if I keep my focus small enough, um, I can be satisfied, right? Um, and so there's a danger in Zen practice when we talk about being in the moment, that people will make the moment small. The moment includes everything, everything that's come before, everything that we're laying down the causes and conditions for in the future and everything all the way out. So this is very daunting. Um, and I think uh, people tend to, you know, fall into some sort of cultural amnesia about it. Let's just not think about it. Um, or some kind of confusion, I don't know what to do. So um, and that leads to then some kind of apathy. I think there's nothing for me to do actually. Um, and sometimes it turns to violence, right? So we've seen that in our, in our culture. But mostly it leaves us kind of bewildered and beleaguered and feeling kind of beaten down by you know, things that we have little control over and don't really understand how to fix. So that's the background against which we are practicing together. And I want to talk a little bit about this, you know, in Buddhism, uh, my students used to say Buddhism is all about suffering. It's just about the suffering. You know, why is Buddhism, why does Buddhism talk about happiness? Buddhism does talk about happiness, but first we have to deal with the suffering. Right? <laughs> so I always think of this first noble truth as kind of a reality check. Yes, life is painful in many aspects for everyone at some point. So um, the, um, the realization from Analeo that this term dukkha is actually an adjective and not a noun, it's not life is suffering as though these are equivalent. It's life is painful. Birth is painful. Birth is also joyful. But birth is painful, so death is painful. So it's a kind of reality check, just a reality check. And so the antidote, um, in some 
cases, people dwell on the suffering, right? So then they become sort of depressed and exhausted by the suffering. But the antidote is really to think about what brings joy and what liberates, because that's what we have to offer um, out of Buddhism. And how is that possible? In the midst of all of the tumult that we're in, how is it possible? The real question is, can you have joy in the middle of distress, in the middle of this world, with all of its complications, in the middle of the suffering and grief that we're experiencing? Um, and where does that joy come from? You know, how do we mobilize it? How do we discover it? How do we reconnect with it? So for me, I think, um, you know, at the, at the base of it, um, there's this um, joy in the work for the liberation of all. So this is the joyful work we're doing together, even though we're doing it in kind of an unusual way. We're not marching in the streets. We're not, you know, handing out pamphlets, you know. Um, so, but this is our work. And the work is also to cherish our life in this moment, as broad <laughs> as this moment is, um, and to cherish this person who's right in front of us, right? Each person who's right in front of us to understand they bring a whole universe of experience that's, that we don't know, right? So then I think the other way to find joy, to, um, to discover joy, is to encourage others and to appreciate others and to create the good. So this was my sort of monumental effort in establishing and fostering Alpamata, the sense that we can do that at least. We can start a small good thing. And those people who want to be together in that way, they'll find each other in this small good community, right? And that that itself will bring joy and will bring some liberation. So our creative practice um, is this kind of mindful observation in our more intensive we're doing this kind of mindful observations, but we're journaling a little bit about what the what we're, fragments of our, you know, our mind we're able to capture, so that we can clarify the view. So the very first of the eightfold path is what? Right, right view. Are we so convinced we have right view? <laughs> you know, <coughs> I worry about it because um, we generally accept without any challenge our view, right? They very seldom question it. So, and this was brought to the fore um, when, I, when I was on the way to my air, to the airport, my nephew was driving me and I was talking to a couple people about this. And he began sort of off in an offhand way spouting right-wing talking points that have long been discredited and that are all shopworn. So um, I, this alarmed me because he's a very intelligent kid in his forties. Um, very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> and he's read deeply in philosophy and was trained in law school. So there was so little critical thought in it that I became alarmed. And it, and it was like, it, in the way that he um, presented it, it was just sort of taken for granted, you know. So this alarmed me and I started to think about, we really have to clarify the view. Um, our perspective is, from a certain point of view. Um, and so we have to have uh, enough patience to uh, tolerate a perspective shift and to look from other perspectives and consider what that would mean. Uh, so of course, that was a very different perspective from my perspective. Um, 
And I began to think about, oh, well, you know, what would it look like from that view, right? So we begin with this inquiry, are there alternatives to the view that I am so wedded to that I think is so absolutely correct because of my experience and my study and what I know and what I, people I talk to and, you know, what I read. So then to begin to have this kind of creative inquiry around that, um, not uh, as a way of discounting my position, but so much as to give a broader perspective on it, right? Which we're often unwilling to do because we, it feels threatening. Like we might, we might lose ourselves. We might lose our, you know, our view, our position. So we should ask ourselves, how should it be? Right? How should it be? And then the next question is why? So how should it be? Men and women should be equal. They should be paid equally for, for equal work. And why? You know, this is the beginning of the kind of inquiry. And then who says? And then, well, how? Honestly, how would that happen? So the point is not to dismiss or discount a view. The point is really to understand oh, it comes from a certain perspective that has a certain rationale, that has a certain grounding, that, and, you know, and, and to understand those things are constructed. They're not natural realities. Right? They're constructions. They're um, socially and culturally mediated and historically mediated also. So that's how they, so, that, so that's why in the South, people could think it was only logical to have slaves. And they could agree on that. It wasn't even, you know, uh, a question in the culture. So it's quite possible for masses of people to have wrong view. And those views, even when questioned, um, are, are defended, right? Strongly defended. So we have to have enough openness to question, how do I hold this view? And um, why? And who says so? Who am I listening to? Am I only listening to these people over here? And therefore, we're just all confirming each other, which happened with slaveholders in the South. Yeah, yeah, you know, black people aren't really, you know, not really human, you know. So, so we want to then clarify our intention, and that means to pause then. Just what's our intention? And ask ourselves, ask of our intention, really? Why? You know. So sometimes it pops out and you don't have any control over it. So if somebody asks me, um, well, you know, why do you think we practice anyway? And I said, save all beings. You know, like, I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't, you know I, don't, I don't know how to express it other than that. You know, I don't know another view than that. I don't know another place to look at it. So, so this was just like, sometimes it just arises, right? But we need to look at our intention and see what's formed it, right? And what, um, what's motivating it and what's feeding it, right? So, it's perfectly possible for people to have malign intentions and, un and unquestioned malign intentions. So we want to really clarify our intention and then we want to see with, with really fresh eyes then, well, how is it really? How are things really, you know? Um, not just from one perspective, but we often say it's in as a perspective, right? So you need to consider the possibility of seeing things from another perspective, even if that's not your position, that's not where you're located. So, you know, how does a person in Switzerland view this? Or, you know, how does a complete stranger or bystander view this argument I'm having? Or, 
this difficulty I'm having. So it's this sense of getting a freshness of view that I think is really the creative process. Um, to not be bound by either um, our, our you know, sort of long-held views and positions um, or the status quo, sexually and culturally, or what we think people will admire or approve. You know, oftentimes our, um, you know, our, we think that we have to be virtuous, right? Because that's what people would expect, good people, right? So, and I, I love my sister saying, all of my personal growth has come at the moment of the collapse of my virtues. <laughs> Whatever I thought was noble about myself, it completely got demolished. And she said, all of my personal growth has come from that. Which I thought was kind of funny. So the foundations, um, I think, for this kind of work are not, you know, like, we've got to be serious and maybe we'll do this. Um, but they come out of delight and wonder. So, um, so we have to wonder, first of all, we have a human life. How strange is that? You know, when you think of the cosmos, when you think of this planet. So it's very rare. It's also time limited, right? It's got a shelf life. Um, and, um, and it's also different in that it's intentional instead of instinctual. So my little dog can't say, you know, I think tomorrow I'm going to play with the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's my agenda for tomorrow. <laughs> they, just, they don't work like that, right? But we work like that. Like we have to do this. We have calendars, you know. So, uh, so we have this capacity to be intentional. So we don't just bite people because they make us upset, right? We can uh, we can withhold some of our instinctual reactions, so in the service of some higher good. So. Um, so I was thinking too about the fact that um, for a very long time, most of my life probably, I thought life just sort of came at you and you just sort of like tried to bat at it, you know, like <laughs> trying to do whatever you could with whatever was coming at you. I really felt that way, you know. And then, um, you know, I met my husband and he was the first person who introduced me to the idea that you can create experiences that you want to have, which was such a bizarre concept to me because I was just busy trying to manage all the stuff that was coming at me, you know? And he'd say, well, I think we should take the boat out tomorrow afternoon and, you know, bring some people out on the boat. And I'd think, oh, oh, okay. You know, this isn't just something that accidentally happens. It just shows up. You plan it and you do it and you have this experience of a whole bunch of people going out on a boat. So <laughs> this was novel to me. You know, and also the idea that you could prepare for that. So we'll go down today and clean the boat. Clean the boat? <laughs> I didn't know boats needed to be cleaned. They're in the water all the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it be clean, you know? This was so surprising to me. But this idea, and Flint was, is really the master of this, of crafting the experience that you want to have or the experience you want to offer others. He's an experienced artist. And it's not like the things happen to him. It's like he manifests this constructed experience that he's creating for himself and other people. This was also a novel concept to me. But, oh, you can create experiences for other people. Oh, that's so surprising, you know? <laughs> I don't feel like I had that kind of agency, really. You know, like, be empowered to do that. So anyway, so this is how, when we began um, sort of this fostering the idea of Alphamata, 
we thought of it in the, these ways that we would um, uh, that we would use the Zen as the ground of creating relational um, kinds of practice, so that people would be warmly connected with each other. This was a novel concept in Zen at the time. I think there's more interest in it now. You know, a little bit more talk about it. So, um, so this to me um, is that. Uh, it, 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 it's beginning to recognize that um, others are not just objects on the playing field of our experience, but others are the fabric of our experience, and we're the fabric of everyone's experience. So it's not like, if only this person who annoys me would just like go. I'm <laughs> 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 like, oh, ripple in the fabric there, you know? It's like, it's the funniest thing. You start to see, oh, all of these experiences are not only teachers, but they're the vibrant um, energy of life expressing itself. So one of the ways that we play in Zen, as you know, is with koans. And uh, koans in Soto Zen are not you know, something to muscle through and try and solve like a riddle. They're really um, sort of things that permeate your life and that you begin to play with. I mean, literally play with it. You might be able to stop something. Suddenly the koan sort of emerges and you might, um, you know, might be fixing a meal or something. It's not like we will see the meditation and think about the koan. So to give you a little taste of this, I, I love this book, um, Bring Me the Rhinoceros by John Tarrant. This is actually a proof copy, so, um, so it's, a, yeah, it's an early copy. Um, uncorrected proof, it says on the front. So, but I want to read you this one piece that he writes because it speaks to what I've been talking about, how we get stuck in practice, how we sometimes get bored, you know, and he's talking about a koan, and the koan is count the stars in the sky. Count the stars in the sky. So here's what he says about this. A boring koan. <laughs> <laughs> there are passages in life that seem as if they are between other passages. There may be nothing wrong with them, but they don't have much heft of their own. Such moments are vestibules or airport lounges. I know something about this. <laughs> you pass through them, not for their own sake, but in order to get to other moments. You have this feeling, right? The range of these between moments or intervals can be wide. Times of physical pain often take such a form, as can waiting in line for a driver's license. And in general, waiting for someone else to do something, for example, to sign a deal, to grant you a visa, to die, to fall in love with you, to be impressed by you, or to pass sentence on you. One of the virtues of meditation is that it allows you to tolerate or even enjoy such between moments, to befriend the material your mind throws to the surface when it is not otherwise occupied by chasing something or trying to improve its condition. There is a koan that encouraged me to examine such moments. This is such a great story. I'm going to read it to you because it's such a wonderful um, telling story. The koan, counting the stars. Count the stars in the sky. That's the that's all koan. For a long time, this koan lacked interest for me. It was possibly downright boring. The koan is usually given to someone soon after their heart has started to open up. At that moment, you might feel as if you are floating on the ceiling. It is said in the koan schools that if you awaken in the morning, you don't mind dying that evening, your life has been worth it. 
You can see your place of belonging, how you have a home in the oak tree, and your neighbor and the elk running, rubbing its velvety antlers on a gray fence post. In this razzle-dazzle, you might forget that you are also yourself, Sally or Bill. This koan seemed to remedy that tendency by insisting on the mundane and the particular. Counting, numbering, taxes, deductions, interest rates. The koan doesn't allow you to be vague and enthusiastic the way spiritual expressions can sometimes be. It asks for embodiment and precision. The traditional response that has been passed down is just to count the stars. That's fun because it's impossible, though not wildly so, since the activity of counting is a familiar one. I have noticed, along with the other teachers I worked with, that no one had ever had much to say about counting the stars. This could be interesting, I thought. What if I have found a boring koan? <laughs> Perhaps I should feature it in some way. Boring koans available here. <laughs> no one's heart seemed to be changing, and though that might be the point of a boring koan, for me, this koan was like an apple tree that had always been in the garden, but had never flowered. Love that image, right? The apple tree that always been in the garden but never flowered. Some passages in life seem plain or nondescript, yet they might make life sing. The way an anonymous brown bird hopping under the orange tree makes the garden more alive. Some people fight boredom in meditation, yet to be bored can be a good thing. It can mean the beginning of an appreciation for bare, plain qualities. Enduring your own consciousness is so valuable, I thought. Why shouldn't a koan be there just to bore you? <laughs> In this way, might not you appreciate your mind even when it is not being amused or having a problem? Intervals and moments between other moments can be good. You enter a boring eternity in airport gates and shops and bars, which can sometimes be soothing. I think airplane crashes, so infrequent compared to car wrecks, are especially shocking because the point of being in an airliner is that nothing happens. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> You're like, thank goodness nothing happened. <laughs> like an elevator, it's a place of boredom, not of events. The Tibetans have the word bardo, you've all heard this word, right? Which is often applied to the imagined realm you travel through after death, but bardo actually means between, and all human states are actually bardos. Waking is a between state, and dreaming while you sleep is a between. Dying is its own between, and death, when in that imagined life you wander until a rebirth seizes you, is also a between state. Life is understood as intervals between other intervals. So far, so good. Now, when you're working with a koan, it's most interesting if you consider that everything going on for you is connected to that koan. Everything you think and feel, every reaction you have to events is in the field of the koan, right? That's what's sort of percolating in your life. <clears throat> the way the earth is in the gravitational field of the sun. Also, when you are in the field of a koan, you usually notice two opposite experiences. One is a sense of the vast background, the, the eternity that is inside everything you do and through which you move each day. <clears throat> From this point of view, life is not a mistake, and there is no in-between moment that has less value than another. The beauty of common things shocks you. There is nothing boring about them. It is this experience that people talk about when they speak of enlightenment, or intimacy, or a profound change of heart. It's a happy moment. 
I have noticed that a koan usually has a quite different and darker effect as well. This other effect of a koan is to evoke, how to put it, the delusion, the belief system that seems to belong with this particular koan. This belief system is an assemblage of painful thoughts. It might seem as if you are failing. You might say to yourself, this way is too hard, or I'm an idiot. Or you might suddenly remember old grievances as if they had just occurred. <laughs> These painful thoughts don't mean that you are failing. Instead, they mean that this is how pain appears to you. This is the aspect of your imprisonment that the koan evokes. For example, any koan that depends on a comparison can evoke a fierce feeling of superiority or humiliation. The koan, the great way is not difficult, it just avoids picking and choosing, which we're all familiar might bring up lots of picking and choosing and all the hope of gain and fear of loss you have ever had. <laughs> Such a koan can show you everything you don't like about your own consciousness when you pick and choose. It can also be true that if a koan makes you suffer in such a way, then it might be especially useful for you. <clears throat> and if you are interested in freedom, it might lie in this direction. You could go toward rather than away from the sign in your mind that says, no trespassing. And what does finding freedom mean? When you are objecting to the moment, you are treating the moment as a between, a faux moment, a mistake not a real moment to be inhabited. If you see that your thoughts are the source of your pain, freedom begins. You have been a character in a novel and suddenly you stop following the script and step out of the novel. No extra effort is needed. You don't need to write a better script. At the moment of his awakening, Buddha said, I have met the builder and broken the ridge pole. I shall not build this house again. For me, the delusion that came with count the stars in the sky was that it was boring. Then one evening, an engineer told me how he had been touched by it. And I understood the koan the way he did. First of all, he had a dream about koans generally. He dreamed of a complicated lock with moving parts. When you align them just right, you could see the moon through the keyhole. <clears throat> the lock was antiquated, and he was working out how to deal with it. That was a promising set of images of koans as antique locks and also as windows into a moonlit world. When he woke, he felt encouraged. One night, he went out onto the veranda, and there was fog in the redwoods, wrapped around the great trunks. The next night was clear. He started. One, two, three. He enjoyed the counting. There was nothing down to earth about it. The vastness of the galaxy was in each star. There were too many stars to count, and yet the count went on like a prayer. The next day, he kept repeating to himself, count the stars in the sky. As he drove and ate and talked to his family, he kept the koan with him. He noticed that when he was with the koan, little things, being short of sleep, the market taking a dive, feeling physical illness, didn't throw him. He kept counting. He counted some more stars and asked himself, what is counting the stars? The next day was intense at work, and he forgot the koan for long stretches. But when he got in the car, there it was. It was as if the koan began to hold the koan. The next day, every situation had an illumination of its own. The color of leaves was intense. It was full of joy. The next day, when he saw the plainness of objects and people, 
He wasn't happy or unhappy. He wasn't moved to speak about this plainness. He saw that this was the traditional response to this koan. The counting itself was a complete thing. He continued with the koan. Then he came to talk to me. He jumped up, opened the door, and pointed out to the redwood trees and Douglas fir, the early evening sky darkening among them, the rough rock wall, the moss and trillium, and the fall away into the valley. He was excited. He felt so befriended by life and so unafraid. He pointed to himself and to me and to the lamp. That's a star. That's a star. That's a star. He pointed to a table. That's a star. He pointed to a flower arrangement. That's a star. He pointed to himself. A star. What about terrorists? Yes, terrorists too. Definitely stars. He pointed the, through the window again to the evening. There's no death because all of this is me, all of these stars. We sat together in the silence, then talked for a while. Then I gave him the next koan and he laughed. <laughs> then I began to remember. I remembered Mr. Roland, a retired gentleman in a brown suit to whom I had just introduced myself, who taught me to count to 1,000 at the age of four. We were standing beside snapdragons at his front gate. I remembered my grandfather teaching me the names of stars, constellations, galaxies, Canopus and the great ship Argo, the crow, the Magellanic clouds, Orion with his sword and his red shoulder, the giant star of Betelgeuse, a hunter accompanied by his dogs chasing the Pleiades. He taught me how some names were from Arabic because of the desert astronomers, Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, some Aborigines called the Southern Cross the Swan. My grandfather also brought out his antique sextant, teak, ivory, brass, and smoky colored glass he looked through. Standing beside me on the black street above the chimneys of the public hospital, he taught me how to find my latitude, just in case. <laughs> he told me it was worth your while to know the names of the stars, to be able to navigate by them, and to contemplate vastness. Pacing the bridge of a ship on watch at night is good for this activity, he advised. I saw then that this is one of those embarrassing stories in which the storyteller unconsciously describes his own mind. I thought the koan was boring, but I hadn't let it all the way in. I thought the koan was lazy, but no, that was also me. <laughs> and I had convinced a few of my colleagues as well. It's really nice to have your delusions exploded. It's like getting out of prison. If you can see a delusion of your own, it's wonderful. You can breathe. You can find the walls that lately hemmed you in. I like to sit on a veranda overlooking the valley, counting the Pleiades coming up in the cold air, the crow, the big bear turning around the pole as the night goes on. And that's what meditation is like, really, doing nothing, looking at nothing in particular, relishing the plainness, the life in between. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. So that's it, you know, um, that recognition, that moment of recognition. So that's what koan play and then that kind of creativity in our play um, brings forth. So practice today, count the stars in your sky. What stars are there in your sky? That's a good question. Um, and um, in journaling, <laughs> just, I, I don't have my technological support for mind mapping because the printer will not speak to my computer. So I don't know. <laughs> just what I thought about that. Yay. So, <laughs> so in your journaling, um, 
uh, in my experience, my noting of my thoughts takes usually no more than about two minutes. So the rest of the time, I'm just, I'm just really reflecting on that. Um, so, so any reflections of patterns or themes, um, and one of the things you might notice is are most of my thoughts interior, how I'm feeling, how I'm thinking, what's happening, or are most of my thoughts exterior, what did she say, what was she really meaning by that, you know, um, uh, that's one thing to notice, they tend more interior, they tend more exterior, um, are they a, mi a mix, you know, um, and what is the mood of them, right, so what's, there's a kind of a mood, which I would call the background consciousness of being, for example, generally despairing or being generally hopeful, or, you know, like there's kind of, there will be a tendency and you can notice and, and things will circle back. It's like, it's um, in complex systems, they talk about strange attractors. Uh, we have a kind of central strange attractor that brings our mood back, right? Maybe have a happy moment and it's like, oh, but things are really bad, you know? Uh, so, so you watch for that, watch for some kind of tendency in the mood. And then, um, Oh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to make this point. Uh, first of all, we cannot create positive social good without a strong creative vision of the possible. The Buddha knew this. That's what he talked about and taught about awakening. Right? We need a strong, positive vision of what's possible. And you don't have to break something to make the new, um, but you will upset the status quo. So when we started Akamata, we didn't refute the traditional Japanese model. We celebrate, actually. Um, but our way of running our sangha is very different. And it does not follow the sort of a status quo for Zen centers. So, um, so I know you've been waiting for this. I'm going to give you the secrets of Zen. <laughs> I think I've been withholding them all this time, but actually, you know, um, we practice for the joy of it, for the freedom to be, just be, without any roles, without any responsibilities, without any tasks, without anything we have to do or say or think. We practice to connect um, for the joy of it. Right? Our connections are a joy. We certainly know this after what we've been through with the pandemic. We, can, we, we also uh, practice uh, for the freedom to be together in community in the ways that we aspire to be, not in uh, you know, some sort of uh, armed conflict. Um, we also learn for the joy of it. We read about the Dharma, we read about teachers. Um, this is all joyful activity. It expands our horizons, it deepens our practice, um, it liberates us, and best of all, it serves others. So if you haven't seen some sort of benefit in your relationships with other people, even people not in the Sangha, I would be very surprised if you've been practicing more than six months, you know? So these are the secrets of, of Zen, is that it's not about suffering, it's about joy. It's really the joy that we have in this practice. <clears throat> and that requires some trust, and so we have to understand that we must trust the process even though changes are not obvious to us. They're happening oftentimes below our level of awareness. So we, we need to have patience and uh, an understanding that this is a creative pro process and practice and a way of relating that's new 
unfamiliar for many of us because many of us have you know background dynamics and our ways of relating that are not like this. Um, maybe it's just me. Um, and that it's always already working on us, the practice. It's always already working on us. So um, despite our awareness or lack of awareness uh, of it, it's still working. Um, so, so our question, you know, what is being created through our practice? How do we know? How do we know what's being created through our practice? So for some people, this is like an incredible waste of time to sit and stare at a wall, really? Are you serious? You know, how does that help anything? How does that help the world? So um, how do we know? How do you think we know whether practice is, quote, working? In our actions. In our actions. In our actions. actions? Yeah. In what way? In the way we conduct our life with others. You see a difference? Yeah. Some kind? Yeah. Yeah. That seems beneficial. It's beneficial. Yeah. It's, for me, it's more with uh, family and with my patients and the people that I I around. Mm -hmm. I can see the difference. Do you think they see the difference? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. And what do you think that difference is? The difference is connection and presence. Mm -hmm. Connection and presence. Yeah. I'm, I. I want to make sure you guys hear that. Connection and presence. Yeah. You know this. I notice how I feel when I don't do it. Ah, so that's as telling as, as, as it can be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed myself feeling kind of scattered and a little bit more emotionally volatile, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you see that too? Yeah, I think I have more, uh, escaping me, more longer energy for connection. Uh, even the person I'm engaged with might not be conscious, but I see it. I can see the, ex the result of the experience yeah. the more I sit. Yeah. And, and I have more of those events throughout the day. So I feel like I'm serving. Like, I'm, it's just better. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is the absolute function of a household or sangha is that you're taking it out into the world, right? Not just concentrated monks, but we're taking it out into offices, you know, high-tech businesses, families, um, friendships, neighbors. Um, and it's surprising sometimes, right? Um, the person themselves that you're related to may not be able to articulate it or name it, but they feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I would add one more thing. I can accomplish a lot. I'm a grinder. I have a daughter. If I'm sitting and she'll follow, whether she wants to or not, she'll, I'm an example. But I think if I'm more open, it opens her world somehow because she sees mm -hmm. what I'm, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Absolutely. Children are very keen observers. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they're absorbing it all. They may, may or may not have no language to describe it or talk about it, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? I really notice it as a spiritual friendship. I just, I'm continually in awe of 
looking around the Sangha and just being surrounded by such incredible people. That feels like it's like, yeah, it's all Yeah, we support each other in that turn towards the aspiration that we share, right? And sometimes it's, you know, it's a challenge because, because hopefully, you know, people are different. <laughs> and so we don't want some sort of, you know, group think where everybody thinks exactly alike. We want those differences to open things up, right, for us. So maybe they provoke us or annoy us, and that's actually a good thing because it forces us to really think about, you know, how, how accepting am I? How open am I? How do I understand things, you know? So, I think the word that comes to me when I, when I ask that question, what is being created through my practice, is space. Mm. I was one of those people that was continually filling up space with noise, with busyness, with doing stuff, and sitting. Um, not only quieted my body, but quieted my mind in ways I didn't expect. Yeah. Which made room for made space. Other things. Yeah. I sometimes think of it like um well like like a room like this where you've you've removed everything in order to allow anything to happen. <laughs> it could be a dance studio, it could be a cooking lesson, it could be dog training, it could be, you know anything could happen <laughs> in space. But when it's all filled up, then it sort of limits the activity that can happen there. And it's the same with the mind, you know, when there's too much furniture, um, then we're all bumping into it, and we can't do the things that are freeing and, uh, and kind of enabling. Yeah. I think, so, that, I think that's what I've noticed. I think I've noticed that my container's a lot bigger and that, so that I can kind of see reactivity coming up without um without it being without me being the reactivity it's like there's a space between my immediate reaction and then sitting with the reactivity and then choosing a different response i think that's the biggest thing that i've noticed is that there's there's just there is just i mean like like um stephanie was saying there's there's so much more space and in relationships with other people there's like there's more patience there's like a patience that's that's increasing um, to kind of be be with difficulty more easily, be be more at ease with difficulty, and to kind of um, see difficulty as as teachings, as opportunities. You know, like the instead of just oh gosh, you know, here's the disturbance. It's like a it's like I get these feelings of disturbance. You know, I'm all right for a bit, then there's another disturbance, and it's like oh, what can I learn from this? What's it telling me? You yeah. know, what do I still need to learn? And I think it's that awareness of that rather than being caught up in, oh, there's a disturbance. It's like, oh, what is this? The space to kind of stop and look at it. I think that's the little, little gap, right? So, yeah. In which you, you can uh, have a different response. And that's the creative piece of it. You know, you can have a different response. But yeah, yeah, I think that's a very important function um, of practice that we begin to see where reactivity comes from and whether it's actually serving anything or not, which often not, uh, because often just contributing more to the whatever is troubling about the situation. And I think there is a big shift in practice between people who are brand new and people are starting to get it. And that shift is everything is training. 
Under traffic, it's the training and patience. Oh, okay, you know, it's the training and patience. Everything is training for something. And so oftentimes the question is, what is this the training? <laughs> <laughs> now I've made a big mess. So what is it? this is the training and you must be mindful, I guess, you know? <laughs> so I think this is, um, it's a helpful turn because you start actually recognizing that the upsets are the training in practice that you've been looking for. And usually at a, at a right at the level you can barely manage, you know, <laughs> right there. Um, this where you'll get hit with it because that's the training. I had to what is this module anyway? You know, it seems like we've stepped up a notch here. It's a little bit more challenging, um, but that's actually a good sign. So if what you're dealing with is mostly low-level challenges, that's really training. Um, and soon enough, you know, like in this poem, you'll encounter some of the deeper challenges. And that's also the training. But it's hard for people to see that. And, and sometimes I feel like it's unfair to say that because people who are new are struggling with all of the things in their lives. It's, it's a real burden and a crushing you know, thing for them because they don't understand how to use it yet. And, um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's, it might seem like you're blaming the victim or something. That's not what the intention is. The intention is really, you're facing this. It's not going away. How can you make good use of it? and not waste an opportunity um, because the things that happen to us are uh, unpredictable oftentimes, right? And so I always feel like if we're training in patience and traffic, then at some point where we've got a broken leg or something, or waiting for a doctor to set it, that training is going to become useful, right? Um, or if we're, you know, tempted to be agitated because we're waiting for something to come in the mail, that training is useful. Um, so, and it will be useful in times when there are much greater stresses than the ones we're meeting in our training. So that's why I think of it as training, right? So work, life is going to throw at us what it throws at us, and we don't actually have that much control over a lot of it. So, um, yeah, so the, the work that we do in practice is really training for what life uh, presents. So, okay, um, in this world, Okay, this is the turn, out, outward turn now. Our turn in practice must not only be the inward turn, but our turn toward each other to create the new causes and conditions for human thriving. That can't be done in solitude. It just can't. Um, and I, so, you know, like, I can't make this happen. Um, only together can we create it, offered as an exemplar in the world. Like, this actually can happen. This is actually quite possible. Um, and it's... Um, you know, the world is a fraught place. It's torn, it's conflicted, it's endangered. So there's a necessity and an urgency to coming together in the ways that we can demonstrate um, that we can create community that welcomes differences, that, that is involved in mutual care, that, um, that, is, that shares delight in our celebrations and our happiness um, and, uh, and our wisdom uh, that is collective, not just individual. So all together, we have so much more wisdom than any one of us has alone. And resilience. So it's very hard when you're on your own to be as resilient as you can be when you're in a community of people who support and care for you. Um, so there's a kind of also collective creativity. So together we're co-authoring this narrative called Apamata, you know, which I'm actually trying to write about, um, Apamata, you know. Um, so, uh, so that's ongoing. And 
the project then will sort of um, invite the voices of the Sangha to share their experiences so that we weave this together as a as our, our collective story, our collaborative story. That's my intention. So, um, so that's the work I'm engaged in now. Um, let's see what else I want to say. About. Oh, um, so I want to return to one of the teachings of the Buddha around the Brahma Viharas, the four so-called divine abodes, you know, that of loving kindness, of compassion, of empathetic joy, and of equanimity. So when we practice with these things, we practice sort of radiating those qualities, but also out in our lives, we can, we can look for the creative ways we can express loving kindness, or the creative ways we can express compassion, or the creative ways that we can uh, share in someone else's joy. So, um, so we're looking for the, those kinds of things. Um, and as far as equanimity is concerned, equanimity really is freedom from compulsion, the compulsion of impulses, emotions, or sensations. Um, it's not numbness. So the opportunity is to be creative about ways to find equanimity in the middle of complex situations or conflict or something like that is a real gift. So this is one of the things um, I think we can look for and not just the inhabiting these divine abodes, but also the creative ways that we can make tiny little expressions of them. It doesn't have to be a big gesture, but some tiny little ways that we can express those. And that's that's another way that we can be creative in practice. So um, I think that's all I have to say for today, but I won't leave things, uh, leave enough time for questions if you have questions. But. thoughts or reflections about this. Does this make sense to you? Mm -hmm. It does. Can you expand a little bit about what you just say about the creativity to express the Brahmavihara? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, um, in terms of loving kindness, there's a very famous story about Mother Teresa coming out of a, a hospital, you know, and a beggar in a way, you know, so beseeching her. And she just turned and gazed at him and saw him. You know? And so that's a creative response, not um, not just to drop a couple of coins in this cup, you know, but to really see him and uh, in this uh, way of loving kindness, right? Mm -hmm. this, this gaze of loving kindness. The people who have been repudiated and outcast and disrespected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's those little, it's in moments, you know, it's in moments where you realize um, you can um, just have an ordinary transaction or you can really brighten somebody's day, right? Um, and there's, uh, there's all kinds of possibilities always presenting themselves. So, so I think of this as a, another little way that we can train in, um, in the exercise of those things. So that person then is a little bit um, uh, expanded by that too, right? So their next interaction is gonna be a little bit different also. So. Uh, yes, because that reminds me, um, one time I was, I don't remember, uh, in a store, and the lady was very rough with me, you know, even though me, so I was just quiet, and suddenly, before I get caught with that, uh -huh. I say, I was start looking, oh, it looks like she's probably tired, so I said, how was your day? And suddenly it just mm -hmm. shifted completely, Yeah, and she was, started getting more soft. Yeah. So is that? Yeah, it's just like that. It's mm -hmm. just those 
um, recognizing a moment. Yeah. Um, and as, as John Tarrant is talking about these in-between moments, we treat things as in-between moments, but they might not be. You know, we're just checking out groceries, you know, that could be an in-between moment, but it might not be. You know, it might be a moment to make a connection with it. Check out the with the person behind you. Um, I'm reminded in, these, in the discussion of the in-between moments that Nate recently brought up the famous graduation talk by David Foster Wells called This is Water, mm -hmm. in which these in-between moments when we are normally sunk in irritation that, that things are moving slowly, yeah. that somebody bothering us about something, you know, that those are, we can actually look around and see these are real people, right. this is a real life. And 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 it's, this is the water we're you know this is the water we're swimming. It's this real life, not this narrow view. Yeah, and not this impatient thing. I have to get out of the way so I can get to the real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You with a hundred coupons, out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so so the other thing that makes that possible is to remember that every person is a universe. And when you connect with another person, you get another universe. It's so great, right? Um, it's all their likes and dislikes and their, you know, favorite things and their, you know, like it's another universe. So this is very joyful, also, right? It's true. It's true. And so you know, we get sort of like all these universes. It can be kind of overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I met my husband, I, I knew nothing about his work. I knew nothing about any of the things that he was interested in, but I really liked him. And I was really enchanted talking to him. You know, ah, we're talking, talking, talking. And all of a sudden I realized it's a whole universe there in which antique cars are a thing. <laughs> and antique cars are a thing, not just a thing. But a thing you you fix and build and make, you know, and and you go to rallies and you meet other people who are interested in antique cars also. <laughs> this was so surprising. You know, here's this whole universe. And then he was able to Sunday morning, we're gonna meet over at the, you know, the tap and oh, was, we'll go off to Springfield and and I was like, it's a whole thing. <laughs> a whole universe, you know? And and so that's how he ended up with a car bumper as a Christmas present, you know? <laughs> 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 a 64 Ford convertible, he bought at a bad bumper, but I managed to find a car. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the universe. <laughs> it's reminding me of when my kids were little, I would I oftentimes find myself saying, yeah, there are just so many different kinds of people. There are so many different people in the world, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> just, there's no explaining it, really. No, it's no. a wonderful phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's pretty, um, it's pretty engaging. You know, once you realize that, it was, oh, what's back there? You know, like, what's in that universe? Right? So surprising and um, gratifying. So, uh, so when we have differences, it's great because different universe. You know. It doesn't have all the same landmarks that our universe has, so, so that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Oh, we're coming to the end of our time, right?
Is it almost yeah, three minutes? Three minutes. Okay. Last few questions or reflections. This is great. It's so great to be sitting talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> First, I kind of a delicious treat. I'm just gratifying myself. <laughs> I don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> so we Just totally self-indulgent. <laughs> so I just have to say, without trying, I thank you for embodying all of the wonder and curiosity <laughs> and play that you're talking about. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So you know, I, I do tend to be more on the serious side. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was saying to somebody, I had a dream recently towards the end of the night, so I could remember it actually. Which I was talking to a famous Zen teacher, probably Norman Fisher or somebody like that. We were in a kitchen, you know. And uh, I was saying to him, Look, I've really studied really hard. I've practiced, you know, I've done millions of intensives. I've led intensives. I've done all this work on myself, you know. I've practiced, I've practiced, practiced, practiced. And I said, And I don't feel like I'm good at anything. And he said, Well, one thing you're not good at is goofing off. <laughs> 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 so I said, That's what I'm doing today is good enough. Sometimes um, when I'm really stressed and under anxiety, I get so disappointed in my practice. Oh. I feel <laughs> I should be able to handle this better. Oh, if you're not disappointed in practice, you're disappointed in yourself. Yes, and, yes. and I feel like I can't find the an anchor. Like that, I normally am able to find. Mobilize. Yes, like I know the Anapanasati Sutta and I can do that when things are going well and you know, but when like the tornado hits, I just, I just get all like lost in it and I can't, I, I have a hard time finding. And then what happens? Uh, Well, it just takes a long time to settle. I have to practice more. I have to be more in tune with my mind and my body. So you're, you're actually using your practice to sell yourself following an upset. That's, there's no way to prevent the upset. The right. tornado's gonna happen, right? Mm -hmm. Then we're picking up the pieces, you know, or, Trying to figure out: Do we rebuild? Do we move to a place where there are no tornadoes? What do we do? Okay. <laughs> what do, we do? Now, but, but I think you, what you're describing is, and then you use practice to restore yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And I it do. takes it takes longer than you want it to. It yes. always does. However long it is, five minutes seems like it's like too long. Mm -hmm. But but it's what happens is that time gradually shrinks, and it takes less time. Where, where I, you know, when I, when I started, I would be dragged downstream with these, you know, emotional turmoil for weeks. Then it started to shorten, just like a day or two, and then it started, you know, and then it started, you know, and then it started started to get to the point where, as it was arising, I could see it, and I knew I was being taken by it, but I wasn't going to be taken very far. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's that's part of what I think that benefit of practice is that you don't get dragged downstream quite so far.
It's not like you're not going to have human emotions. You will. Right. But you also know how to practice with them. You know how to turn toward that upset. You know how to work with it in practice. So that's that's the point, really. You know, not to prevent any upset because that actually that's never worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of different kinds of faith traditions and like colossal failure. You know, you just have to understand the practice is about how we meet it and how we work through it, how how we actually recover from the woes. Yeah, and sometimes that means we need a friend. You know, when you're picking through the rubble after the tornado, it helps to have a pal there with you. Mm. you know, say, yes, that was something, was it? You know, look at this as a mess. So, I pick, I'm sorry, I think Mehdi and Kathy would like to say something. Oh, yes, okay. All right, Mehdi and then Kathy. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. I, thank you so much, Peg. I mean, this connections, you know, and that you're speaking about. Um, it just reminded me of a special work at the Stone Center, you know, and the book is Healing Connection. You know, it's a, uh, it's a teaching, you know, part, and then my daughter actually introduced that book to me. So, uh, so important work has been done on this, you know, very important subject of uh, healing and then the name of the book is healing connection actually great it's, yeah it, absolutely i mean i just was just enjoying your your presentation and just going back <laughs> reminisce it sounds like it would be a good compliment to johan hari's book on depression and anxiety called lost connections absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, wonderful book yeah absolutely. yeah so that's Thank great you so much yeah. yeah it's good to know about that yeah kathy Hmm. Hello. <laughs> um, thank you. Yesterday, I realized that um, I was responding um, to other people, and I was um, I was telling or or trying to figure out what felt like a negative story for me. You know that I didn't do something correctly, or I didn't whatever it was. And it bothered me because I hadn't done that in a very long time. And I thought, what is, what is this about? And I, I thought, I need to watch. I need to be aware and uh, just observe. And I woke up between three and four this morning. And when I did, I realized that I was in grief for Martha. Oh, yeah. And it was about that. Oh, and how my perspective changed because of it. Uh huh. And the other thing that, that I thought I'd mention that uh, it was recently that I was listening to um, that one of the New York radio stations had 24 hours of Coltrane music. Oh, it was his birthday. And uh, so I was catching it whenever I, I could. And I got curious about that too. And I've been reading some things and I had no idea that he had a meditation practice. Oh, yes. And that so much of that came out, <laughs> so much of his music came out of that. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. It's good that you took the time and had the patience to track back and, and find where this was originating, um, this upset. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it takes a little detective work, right? To unearth these things. All right. Well, now we're like five minutes past time, right? So we'll extend the tea time by five minutes. It's tea time now. So we'll extend the tea time by five minutes. So we'll um, put the cushions back. And we'll stand by our seats and we'll leave like we do for 10 minutes. 